Hello, I'm Ben Shaw, and you're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Want to get out for some coastal sailing this summer on a beautiful 53-foot far? You could be heading offshore with Shearwater Sailing, who happens to sponsor the show. Shearwater is a sailboat charter business run out of Monterey Bay by Kevin Wasbauer. Kevin's a friend of mine and was on the show a few episodes back. Shearwater Sailing's flagship vessel is a fully equipped FAR 53 named Atalanta. A few months ago, I joined Kevin for a sail on Monterey Bay and can tell you that Atalanta is a fun and fast boat to sail, not to mention beautiful, safe, and very comfortable. On July 30th and 31st, Atalanta will sail from Monterey to San Francisco and back. If you're interested in a great coastal sailing experience, I encourage you to get in touch with Kevin and join him for one or both legs of this 15 to 20 hour jaunt. If you're busy then, you can go the 13th of August when Kevin's planning on heading south to Santa Barbara. You could join for the two day trip down, the trip back, or the whole five day adventure from August 13th to the 17th, which includes a lay day to explore the lovely beach town of Santa Barbara. Of course, in addition to these special trips, you can book private sailing charters for a couple of hours or the full day, go wildlife viewing or take a sunset cruise on Monterey Bay, or even contact Kevin to book your own multi-day adventure. These opportunities are not to be missed. Reach Kevin directly at 650-743-1389 or email him at info at shearwatersailing.net and discuss the possibilities of sailing aboard Atalanta with Shearwater Sailing. Okay, this week we're headed to sea, but in a very different capacity than on a small sailboat. My guest today, Mark Hensley, knows sailing. He's sailed his entire life from sunfish up to bigger cruising boats, but he spent most of his time plying the seas as the captain of oil tankers during a 20-year career with ARCO. Mark has plenty of stories to share from his time on the water and subsequent years teaching at the Maritime Academy here in Vallejo. So I'm going to stop talking now and let Mark tell those stories. So here we go. My name is Mark Hensley. I'm a lifelong sailor. Uh, the first time I ever went out on a sailboat was on my uncle's starboat when I was three years old and was out of Chicago on Lake Michigan. Don't remember much other than I was just on my uncle's sailboat. And uh, so I grew up on the shores of Lake Michigan. I was only six blocks away from the lake and my family had uh, boats that we used to push off the, uh, the beach, uh, sailfish, sunfish, and then we had uh, some larger boats. So I grew up as a, a freshwater sailor, and we lived about two miles south of Great Lakes Naval Training Center. So there were lots of uh, senior naval officers in our community. So man across the street was a captain in the, uh, the Navy, Naval Academy graduate. Two houses down from us was a Navy commander. He was a dentist. Uh, just maybe five or six houses away was a 
Navy chaplain, and I dated uh, his daughter in high school. Uh, nothing serious. but So we had Navy families. My uh, little league coach was a, a commander in the Navy. And so I started thinking uh, Navy. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a boy likes boats. Maybe a man's going to like ships. And so I thought about a, a career in the Navy. So tell me a little bit more before we get to 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 that part of life, which a little older, growing up around these boats, pushing these little boats out into Lake Michigan. Michigan is a big lake, and sunfish are little boats. You must have had some adventures there. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the uh, sunfish, uh, it was you know we were always within sight of land. Yeah, uh, I did have some misadventures. There was a a woman that I've known since first grade, and I think we were in high school when this happened, and uh, she had taken her sunfish out, and I was out sailing, and uh, some stormy weather came in, and she got herself out into a pickle. She was unable to, to handle the boat herself. Mm. Uh, I went out and uh, helped her. What I did is I actually lowered the sail on my boat, took the lines and, and strapped the two boats together, got her on my boat, and then uh, sailed the two boats side by side back in. And our parents, uh, both her parents and my parents, were a little fretful. I was out there, and I, I was not worried. I was concerned but not worried. And, uh, I mean, in, the, in those days, the Coast Guard uh, didn't come out and do anything. on Michigan, they called... Uh, uh, the Navy and the Navy said, well, we really don't do rescues like this, but it all turned out well. Uh, I've never really been that fearful in a storm. I know that uh, the Great Lakes can, the weather can come up quickly. Uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, mm -hmm. okay, there's ample evidence of that. And it's uh, uh, when the Northeasters uh, used to come in. Uh, it would get rough and you wouldn't sail, but uh, as soon as it calmed down a little bit, I was back out there pushing my boat through the surf. So you just had a confidence? Did that come from just spending time on the water, or was it just a kind of a lack of fear? Maybe it was blissful ignorance. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've always felt relatively comfortable around the water. I learned to swim when I was five. I took uh, formal lessons uh, down at Northwestern University yeah. uh, because my grandfather knew the swim coach down there. I said, hey, can you get my uh, grandson in there? <laughs> sure, he's, we usually don't take kids under eight, but all right, he's five. I'll, I'll get him in. So I, I learned to swim at age five. Uh, I wound up being a competitive swimmer. Ah. I swam competitively eighth grade, four years in high school, and four years in college. So I felt comfortable that way. And I've never really been fearful of the water, but I certainly respect it. Yeah. I, I realize what can happen out there. And I'm sure that respect has grown because you have spent so much time on the water, and I'm excited to, to get to that. So... You had your eye on the Navy. I had my eye on the Navy. I saw the ships, and I said, okay, I want to work on ships. Mm -hmm. My parents actually started uh, me, uh, even before I went to high school, planning out what courses I would have to take to get myself into the Naval Academy. So huh, I, okay. I, I, that was my goal to go to the U.S. Naval Academy. Now, you already mentioned that you had a lot of naval families around. Was there any uh, military in your 
family no. directly? No. My father, uh, during World War II, was 4F, so he was disqualified for uh, military service. My paternal grandfather had gone through Great Lakes Naval Training Center during World War One, he got put on a minesweeper, put him up in the crow's nest, and he got violently seasick. Oh, uh, gosh. And my other uh, mater- paternal grandfather was a doctor in the Army. Uh, but So there's really no seafaring background. But they were very supportive. Most definitely. The sailing bug, I think, hit my father, and I kind of followed along with it. Back then, uh, Alcourt was uh, making sailfish sunfish. Uh-huh, yes. And my father bought a super sailfish kit. Ah. Uh-huh. And he was very handy. He had a whole basement full of uh, power tools, uh-huh. uh, lathes, drill press, table saw, bandsaw, uh, shaper, planer, everything like this. And he was very clever, and he bought one wooden uh, sailfish, super sailfish kit, and he copied it, and he and an, another friend built 10 copies oh my on the cheap in our basement. So that's how we really kind of got into uh, the boating thing. That's great. Those were plywood? What? Yeah, they were basically plywood. Yeah. Uh, and so my father just got out, bought all the raw materials, and as I said, he uh, bootlegged it all. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so that was uh, the start of actually. So you guys could have regattas out there. We on did, the lake. Yeah. and so it was an informal kind of uh, sailing off the beach in Lake Bluff, Illinois. And as time went on, uh, the sunfish took over from the sailfish, mm-hmm. uh, fiberglass, and uh, so my father was instrumental with the other uh, sunfish sailors in Lake Bluff, and Lake Bluff. Still today, is only got a population of about six thousand. Very small community, but uh, they sailed off the beach and raced. And so I was racing sunfish uh, as a kid in uh, grade school and high school. So, at some point, I know you made a pivot away from the navy because you didn't end up in the navy. I, I, How did that, that happen? That is correct. So, out of high school, I uh, I applied to. Three colleges. I applied to the Coast Guard Academy, mm-hmm. the Naval Academy, and the University of Illinois on a Navy ROTC program. Okay. The Coast Guard Academy turned me down. I got a nomination to the Naval Academy, and I got accepted at the University of Illinois Navy ROTC. And my mother said, Mark, you better get some academics under your belt before you go to the Naval Academy. You should probably decline your nomination. Now, this is a nomination. This does not mean it's an acceptance. Uh, so I declined the nomination and opted to go to University of Illinois Navy ROTC, still focusing on going into the Navy. But even before I started uh, at the University of Illinois, I once again applied to get into the Naval Academy, the Coast Guard Academy again, and I uh, also learned about the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, New York, another federal service academy, and I applied there. What interested you about that? It was a backdoor way of going into the Navy. Uh, when you're at the Merchant Marine Academy, you hold the status as midshipman U.S. Naval Reserve, and then uh, at graduation, you get a commission as an officer, and you have a obligation to serve uh, in the reserves, or you can, if you want to, 
go active duty. So the option was either serve active duty military or sail in the Merchant Marine. Either one would qualify for your obligation post-graduation. Got it. Interesting. But while I was at the University of Illinois, I had an opportunity to go down to Naval Air Station Corpus Christi over spring break, and they were interested in getting people in, uh, involved in naval flight. And so it was a three-day program called Pre-Flight Indoctrination. Basically, it was a rah-rah program to see if you wanted to fly. Uh-huh. And I was one of the lucky ones that got to go up in a two-seat jet with a Marine Corps captain. Huh. All my other uh, aviation experience had been uh, commercial aircraft, except my father got me to fly in a Piper Cub once when I was a kid. I came down after an hour in this jet, and I was just so enthused. I said, Navy, I want to go Navy flight. So uh, I did get the appointment to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. Coast Guard turned me down the second year in a row, and my congressman had no more nominations available at the Naval Academy, so I said, I will go to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. And so the whole time I was there, I thought I was going to go into the Navy, but I thought about flying. I actually had orders to go to NAS Pensacola for flight training uh, right after graduation. Well, actually, it was in October of 1970. Uh-huh. And if you think back to what was going on in 1970, uh, college mm. campuses were in a great amount of turmoil. Kent State had happened, and I reconsidered going to active duty in the Navy. I had just spent four years at the academy, and I was not interested in wearing a uniform for another seven years. That was the obligation if you went Navy flight. Mm. Uh, the Navy wanted uh, you to stay in for a minimum of seven years once you uh, got into the Naval flight program. The Vietnam War was in full swing. Oh, it was in full swing. Yeah. And the Navy needed aviators. Usually, uh, that's a, a plum job. Nuclear propulsion submarines and aviation you know it's like the pick of the litter and uh, i was very surprised that i was accepted i had no trouble passing the physical but my grade point average uh i guess if the truth be told uh i graduated as the anchor man of the class of 1970 from the u.s merchant marine academy and i assume you know what the anchor man is uh, well on the bottom i would assume that is correct. Uh, <laughs> the anchor man is that person who graduates from Coast Guard Academy or the Naval Academy or the Merchant Marine Academy with the lowest GPA. Uh. I did what was theoretically impossible. I actually got out of there with a 1.96 GPA. You were supposed to have a 2.0 or no go. And I think they just said they'd seen enough of me and they said for four one hundredths of a grade point average, we're going to get you out of here. So <laughs> squeaked by. I squeaked by. So uh, I was the anchor man of the class of seventy. Wow. Said no, thank you to the to the flying at that point. That is correct. I, yeah. I declined my orders, and I really th and I I thought about this. I thought about it long and hard because it's something I'd thought I wanted for a long time. Right. Yeah. That must have been a very difficult decision. It was, and. I really 
thought about what I wanted out of life and I did want to go to sea. And I had, as a cadet, I had one whole academic year as a cadet on various merchant ships. And I did like that hands-on experience of actually being on the ship. Tell me about that lore of being at sea. What was it? Was it working the ship? Was it being on the ocean? Was it traveling? It was all of those things. I didn't ever view myself as being the kind of person that wanted to sit behind a desk. I didn't want an office job. So that was that was going to see. Mm. Uh, I liked to travel. Uh, I had traveled. I actually went to uh, two days after I graduated from high school. I spent three months in Europe backpacking around, mm. and I I liked going to foreign countries. Yeah. So uh, when I was a cadet, I visited Panama, west coast of South America, uh, Japan, Hong Kong, Korea, Okinawa, and I I liked that. Uh, I like the real hands-on stuff of working on a merchant ship. It's not the kind of thing where you sit up there with uh, pressed khakis and uh, uh, order people around to do things. Uh, there's that command structure, but it's a lot more hands-on as an officer than it is in the Navy. Huh. So uh, that's what I like. And it, it, it's not formal like the Navy. There's no saluting. Yeah. When I was... Uh, uh, when I went to sea for 20 years, I used to wear jeans, T-shirt, and a flannel shirt. And that, as long as they were clean, that was a good uniform. <laughs> well, how did people know that you were the, the captain then? They didn't, unless you uh, told them. Because I, <laughs> I didn't dress any differently than anybody else. I mean, when I would come into port, I would put on a pair of uh, nice slacks and a decent shirt. Yeah. Uh, except up in Alaska. Alaskans uh, up there. Uh, Anything goes. Uh, they, yeah, they, they love their wool shirts and uh, and jeans. And so they're, you don't dress up going up to Alaska. But every, every place else, uh, you tend to want to look a little bit more spiffy than uh, just <clears throat> the guy with a T-shirt and jeans on. Tell me if this, I don't know if this terminology is correct, but you were commissioned in the Merchant Marine as a cat. The military is a commission. Uh, the Merchant Marine is a license, so okay. you're, you or become a, license. a licensed officer. Okay. So when you graduate from the Merchant Marine Academy, you're either going to be a licensed deck officer as a third mate or a licensed uh, engineer. So it, it's a licensed position. Got that, it. You get. So You were licensed in the Merchant Marine after you were graduated. Correct. And tell me about your first passage. After graduation... Uh, you mean as a cadet or after graduation? After graduation. After graduation. After graduation. <clears throat> the job market was terrible. I went over to the Master Mates and Pilots Union Hall on Howard Street here in San Francisco. Uh-huh. And in those days, I had a beard and uh, <clears throat> shoulder-length hair. Uh-huh. And I went in and talked to the uh, port agent. And he said, son, and I was young enough to be called son in those days. He says, I've got 273 applicants registered out of this union hall, and I have shipped three. He said, if you really want to go to sea, I suggest you find work at a non-union company. And I said, oh, okay, thank you. And I said, well, who are the non-union companies? I was that naive. And he said, 
they're basically the oil companies. And I said, uh, I said to him, well, how do I find them? He says, literally, he told me, he says, look them up in the yellow pages. <laughs> and it's like, get out of here, kid. And, stop wasting uh, my time. And, I have to stop you for a second sure. because not that long ago I read John McPhee's Waiting for a Ship. Yes. And it was uh, serialized in The New Yorker. Was it? Yes. I did not know yes. that. Fantastic book. And I have to say, probably 80 to 90% of my knowledge of the Merchant Marine comes from that. So I'm thrilled to talk to you to, yep. to up my, my knowledge here. There was literally people just sitting around waiting for a ship because the market you would, was... They'd go down to the Union Hall twice a day and wait for a call to come in. And uh, there would nothing come in, particularly for applicants. It's the... Uh, lowest rung on the totem pole so there were no jobs Uh, so I went for the independence and I literally went to the yellow pages and looked up oil companies and I applied to Chevron which was here in San Francisco Uh went down to 555 Market Street actually had a physical with them I went through all the oil companies Um, Exxon uh, Mobil Texaco Gulf Applied to Atlantic Richfield, Arco. And I kept getting no, 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 and no again. Huh. All, all these uh, rejection letters. And I was, I was pretty despondent about this because I really wanted to work. And I was getting unemployment, but I had borrowed money from my parents. And I, I really needed to find a job. And what happened was uh, I actually got a letter from Arco, Arco Marine. And it was what, in the industry, they call them a TNT letter. Thanks, but no thanks. Thank you very much for your interest in working for Arco Marine, but we don't have anything uh, available now and nothing in the foreseeable future, and I'm sure uh, that my application kind of got shuttled off someplace uh, in the back files. And I said, well, that was another one down the drain. And I got a phone call uh, late April of 1971, and they said, I think this was on a Thursday. They said, can you be in Long Beach with your sea bag, your license, uh, and ready to go to work at 8 o'clock on Monday morning? And I said, yes, I can. And I took my last dollars that I had. And I think an airfare in those days, San Francisco to LAX might have been $21 or $22. Wow. Took the, that money, flew down there, took a, a bus to Long Beach, and I got hired. And that was the start of a 20-year career. I still have the TNT letter in my files That's downstairs. wonderful. <laughs> and which company was that? Atlantic Richfield, uh, Atlantic known Arco. as Arco. So okay. I worked for Arco Marine. Arco Marine. And when you started, what was your position on the ship? They had no officer positions available. And uh, so I did have an able-bodied seaman's endorsement, and they said, we're hiring you as an able-bodied seaman. And this is, we're going to take a look at you and see how well you do. And when the positions become available, if you do well, then we will promote you up to the level of your license, which is a third mate. So I spent roughly six months as an able-bodied seaman on an Arco tanker, uh, running, started off uh, going up to uh, Cook Inlet, Alaska. I, f- I did finally get a third mate's job. And uh, 
How long is the progression usually? How long does it, it take it, to You move have up? to raise your license. Okay. And, and at each level, so the three different lo- levels of license, or four different levels are third mate, second mate, chief mate, and then master. Master is captain. And to move up to a second mate, you have to have 360 days of sea service. And then you are eligible to sit for the second mate's exam. This is what that was when I took it. Uh, and then if you, you had to have another 360 days as second mate. In addition to those. Yeah, as yes. second mate. And the said, next right. level up to be able to sit for a chief mate's license. And then another 360 days as a chief mate to sit for the master's license. Now, they did okay. give you partial credit for while you were holding a second mate's license. If you're sailing third mate, uh, then you could actually, uh, at halftime, apply that towards a chief mate's license. So it didn't have to be all uh, that higher level uh, license. Yeah, I was fortunate, and I moved uh, relatively quickly. I had a couple years as third mate, a couple years as second mate, and then I had four years as uh, chief mate. And I know the math is not going to add up, because uh, the, the, but and then I had about ten years sailing as master, which as master. is or the captain, so it's master in command. Yeah, wow. You were on oil tankers. I on oil tankers, these were Correct. oil tankers. What do you remember about that? And what what was different about that struck you about being on an oil tanker as opposed to a as opposed to what you had been on when you were in the merchant marine in the as a cadet cadet. yeah on as a cadet i was on what they call break bulk ships okay there are stick ships they used to use the ship's booms to take cargo on and off not uh it was they did actually have some containers Uh uh-huh but they were not this was not a container ship and they used to put them on deck and then strap them down I was on one bulk carrier. We carried alumina from uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, through the Panama Canal to Longview, Washington. It's powdered aluminum, and then went out to Hawaii after we discharged the alumina, picked up raw sugar, and brought it back to Texas. On the merchant ships, the, the break bulk merchant ships, coastwise running, you were probably no more than three days out of port on the east or on the west coast of South America. Or coastwise, when I was uh, sailed out, I actually had two uh, what they call splits on my sea year. The second half, I sailed out of Seattle, and I made two back-to-back trips to the Far East. Oh, wow. And Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, Okinawa. In those days, on a break bulk ship, you would get into port, and you might spend a day, two days, three days in the port, and... That was pretty nice because you got to go ashore and uh, see the rest of the world on oil tankers. That's time is money. A typical port time turnaround on an oil tanker is usually less than 30 hours. Wow. And uh, And you're loading and unloading for a lot of uh, that time. Well, it's either uh, loading or discharging. Discharging, okay. So you load in one port and then go to another port or ports and and discharge. And then uh, if you discharge the cargo, then you load saltwater ballast onto the ship. Got it. So it keeps the, the draft down and st- helps stabilize the ship. Then you go back to a loading port, get rid of the ballast, and then uh, reload the cargo. So the size of the ships that you are master of? 
the smallest one was uh, just under 600 feet. Wow. And the longest one was 1,100 feet long. Uh, draft was about 66 feet, which Gosh. means that if you are inside the 10 fathom curve, you're ground. The beam on that 1,100-foot uh, ship was 179 feet. Uh, it was so big that a person standing on one side of the ship could not see a person on the other side of the ship because of both the camber or the curvature of the deck and the size of the pipeline. So if you were out there working on deck and I wanted to find you and you were out there working on deck too, I would have to climb up onto a platform called a fire monitor and look on the scope around on the deck to see if I could find you. Wow. So to keep in touch, uh, everybody carries a handy talkie on their belt. Okay. But that that's a big ship. Yes. And you're talking about... Uh, millions of barrels of crude oil. Yeah, that you want to be careful with. That is true, because uh, you can wind up having a major accident like the Exxon Valdez. And as we all saw not that long ago with the Evergreen and the Suez, these things aren't always easy to maneuver it can get stuck that is true i i'm no expert on what happened to the evergreen box ship in the suez canal uh, i have my suspicions but i wouldn't want to uh, monday morning quarterback on that uh, but it's a big ship and it uh, its length was uh, greater than the breadth of the canal and that's how it got wedged in there yeah. so talk about some of the trickiest navigational aspects of that Obviously, I would imagine into and out of port is when things are most critical. Absolutely. Uh, the last quarter mile to the dock is probably the most stressful, usually. I mean, out there in the open sea, uh, sure, ships do wind up getting in collisions or they have maritime casualties. But if something bad is going to happen, it's usually in pilotage waters. So coming into San Francisco Bay, for example you pick up a pilot out of the pilot station, which is about 10 miles offshore. Okay. And then a San Francisco bar pilot comes on board, and uh, you have a little briefing with the pilot, and you go over the vessel particulars, uh, where the ship is going to be going, any critical maneuvering speeds. Tell us a little bit about how that relationship works, because is the pilot then in command of the ship, or is the captain still... In all places in the world that I know of, except the Panama Canal, the master retains the ultimate navigational control of the vessel. Okay. In theory, the pilot comes on in an advisory capacity. And at any time, the master feels that the pilot is making a mistake or needs some kind of corrective action. You have to speak up as the master, and it's... It's a delicate relationship because mm -hmm. the pilot is the person who has the local knowledge, has uh, the expertise to be able to dock and undock the ships. You don't want to step on their toes. But uh, I have on a, several occasions just kind of brought things to the, the pilot's attention. Uh, Give us an example. Tell us about one of those occasions where you felt, oh, I have to say something because... Uh, going a little too fast. 
they say in ship handling in, in pilot waters, speed kills. Mm. Ships are great at uh, picking up speed, but they don't slow down well. Uh, <laughs> there are no brakes on a ship. Yeah. You're dealing with uh, the hydrodynamic drag to slow things down. You can uh, reduce the speed on the engines. And if things come, go from bad to worse, you can actually use the rudder, uh, cycling the rudder hard left, hard right, uh, just like a big barn door to put a, a, a brake on. But that's an emergency maneuver. Uh, but if the pilot is going too fast, uh, you say, hey, Mr. Pilot or Ms. Pilot or just Pilot, I think we need to slow it down here a little bit. And it, because you know the ship better than the pilots know the ship sometimes. And you know their little quirks. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it happen where I was actually on a ship uh, down in Corpus Christi, Texas, where I was the third mate. And the pilot came on. We were uh, loading grain, and we were going to leave a dock, go down to a, what they call a turning basin, turn the ship around, and, and face out the, uh, the other direction. And I remember the captain telling the pilot, uh, Mr. Pilot, uh, this ship does not back down very well. Yeah, yeah, okay. And we were going to this uh, keyhole maneuvering, uh, or the turning basin, and I said, I can see we're going a little too fast. And the pilot wound up giving like a full astern with a what they call a jingle. This is a steam turbine, and you tell the engineers, give it everything you've got on a full astern. And we still slid up into the mud. So it was... Uh, Insult, no injury. Old man said to the pilot, I told you she didn't back down too well. <laughs> uh, but we actually slid up into the mud and then slid back down. But no, nothing got hurt. Yeah. Wow. Um, Since we were talking about speed, tell us about what kind of speeds you're maneuvering at around the port and then what kind of speeds you're getting when you're at sea. Okay, tankers typically have a, a service speed of somewhere between 15 to 16 and a half knots. Okay. They, they're just not fast vessels. Certainly not like uh, container ships. Container ships go a lot faster. They typically do 22, 24 knots, something mm. like that. Okay. Uh, but you're, it has to do with fuel consumption. Your fuel consumption is a factor of cube of the speed. It's just not worthwhile yeah. on tankers to use that extra amount of fuel to move your cargo. So out at sea, they're doing this 15 to 16 and a half knots of sea speed. But when you get into port, uh, you're reducing speed down to maneuvering speed because you want to be able to maneuver the engines. I spent all of my 20 years at sea on steam turbine ships. And an hour before you get into port, uh, you let the engineers know that we're going to be maneuvering. We're going to be coming down and wanting to be able to give a what we call a bell, like a half bell or a, a slow ahead bell, even a reverse engine a stern bell. And they have to make changes down there. They have will have to parallel put and put another generator on the line. Oftentimes they will have to switch uh, fuel to a. Uh, a a different kind of a fuel uh, for California regulations with lower sulfur. It actually slows the ship down. 
Yeah. So there is a full ahead maneuvering, and on the ships I was on, full ahead maneuvering was typically about 12 knots. But sea speed was back up to the 15 to 16 knots. I'm so fascinated about this daisy chain of, of events that has to happen. You're, it's, it's not like when you are on a small boat and you turn the tiller and it boat turns or you or the push the throttle and the and the engine speeds up you actually have to give a command there have to be things that happen in the engine room to make these changes does that mean that you're actually having to think farther ahead you're planning your moves well in advance and particularly for slowing down and you slow down slowly yeah because and you want to get down to maneuvering speed. You don't want to be going too fast. When you board the pilot, the pilot boat has to come in and lay alongside. Yes. And We were talking about this before we actually started recording, about how dangerous that can be. It is. And the master is out there on the bridge wing looking down at the pilot boat, observing what's going on. Typically what will happen is... You will put the uh, come down to a, a slow speed and put the rudder hard over, starting to swing the ship so it creates a lee for the pilot to board. So, so you are out there on the wing. I just want to get the logistics here. Are you yelling back to somebody who's on the bridge to yes. then say, tell the engine room to do this? Yes. Uh, there is a, a mate at the uh, throttles who, if you say... Uh, half ahead, they will say half ahead, and they will maneuver uh, the levers uh, on an automated ship to half ahead. And then I would give an order for a helm, and he had an able-bodied seaman helmsman who was steering, act- actually doing the steering. Yeah. So uh, that's what I would be doing out there on the on the bridge. And wing. so even more than by feel, it's having to know in your head when I say when I give this command, the ship is going to react in this way. And they react slowly. Yeah. It's like dancing with a fat lady. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're they're not nimble. Yeah. I mean, you can be at a dead stop and give it half a head, and the, it just starts to barely creep. Ahead, uh, and uh, just as it takes a lot of power to get it moving through the water, uh, it takes a long time to slow it down. So, if you're out at sea and you had to do a crash stop on one of these big ships, it could take anywhere from a mile to two miles to bring the ship to a stop. That's why it's important for uh, all of us who spend any time time on the San Francisco Bay to remember to stay out of the way of these ships. You're absolutely right, and and there's actually a, a uh, the Inland Rules the Road, Rule 9, that says that vessels less than 20 meters in length shall stay out of the way of large vessels that can only navigate in a narrow channel. And the Coast Guard captain of the port says that starting at Point Bonita over to Mile Rock and inshore from there, that is all Rule 9, and the small vessels have to stay out of the way. So yeah, yelling get, starboard isn't going to no. work. <laughs> and uh, I've had people out there, and they think, oh, I'm a sailboat, and that large container ship is a, uh, a powerboat, and they have to stay out of my way, and that uh, they're ill-informed. Yes, yes. And, and b- believe me, there is no master and there is no pilot that wants to uh, get into a collision with a boat because it can be a career wrecker. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there are hearings, there, 
uh, your license is your livelihood, and if you get proceeded against on your license, the Coast Guard can either suspend or revoke your license, and uh, there goes your way of living. So nobody wants to uh, bully their way through uh, small boats out on the bay. Yeah, yeah. Well, with all of the time that you've spent, you I, so you spent a lot of time going up to Alaska, a lot of time across the Pacific? Uh, not a lot of time going across the Pacific. I, uh, I did uh, two trips across the Pacific as a cadet. I've been across the Pacific, I don't know, I guess maybe nine, ten times, something like that. I, yeah. uh, I've made, uh, I made a trip around the world, started off uh, loading grain in Corpus Christi, Texas, went to Curacao to get bunkers, uh, ten days in Cape Town, putting a, a new propeller on board because our we bl- lost a blade off the propeller. From there over to... Um, well, how, how, how do you lose a blade off a propeller? Vibration. Ah. I was on watch. I was the third mate. We had left Curacao. Uh, we are probably several hundred miles off the coast of Venezuela. And I remember it was about... Uh, we'd changed clocks that night. It was about 10 minutes after 9 at night, 2110. And I heard a bang, and the ship started to vibrate horribly, and the engineer on watch down in the engine room stopped the engine, and he called me up on the telephone and said, what did you hit? And of course, my reaction was, I didn't hit anything. As I ran over to look at the chart, and I said, oh my God, did I miss like a small island or a seamount or something like this that I should have seen? And I, there was nothing on the chart. I mean, the nearest uh, land was somewhere about two and a half miles below the keel. So we didn't, there was nothing we hit. Uh, we limped the rest of the way over to Cape Town. They put the ship in the dry dock. And when they looked at the propeller, you could see it was a cast manganese bronze propeller. And you could see the corrosion oh. and uh, the points where it had cracked. And wow. so it, the, the, it was a five-bladed propeller, and one of the blades just literally vibrated off and cracked, so it was a, an unbalanced propeller. And did it hit the ship? As it, it, it uh, apparently flew up as it was going around. I mean, the shaft was turning at about 102, 103 RPM, and it must have been on the upswing when it broke off there, hit the hull, that was the bang. And uh, the next day... Uh, but didn't pierce no, no. It was just a, a thump. A thump, yeah. And the next day, we put the chief engineer, we stopped the ship out in the middle of the ocean, put the chief engineer over the side on a rope ladder and had him slowly turn the propeller over. And he was counting the blades, and he says, yep, we're missing one. So that, <laughs> that was it. Wow. Wow. So we limped at five and a half knots all the way across the South Atlantic. So we did go to... Uh, Bangladesh with wheat, discharged it. From there, we went to Rastanura, Saudi Arabia, picked up a load of crude oil, and then took that back uh, across the Pacific uh, over to uh, Long Beach. So I've crossed there. I've done two uh, round trips over to Karg Island, Iran, uh, back before the Shah got deposed. Uh And then I've been over there on the shipyard 
uh, a couple of times going across the Pacific. Well, I would be remiss. My daughters would reprimand me if I didn't ask you about pirates. Piracy is a big problem. I never encountered any pirates. Uh, the hot spot used to be the Malacca Straits. Right. And I, I've passed through the Malacca Straits maybe a dozen times. Would you do anything in preparation or in... When I went through, the piracy problem was not of the magnitude that it was, let's say, 10 years ago. Yeah. There are countermeasures that ships can take when they're going through known pilotage waters. The, the Straits of Malacca have kind of toned down a little bit, and mm-hmm. currently it's the uh, Gulf of Guinea off the uh, west coast of Africa that is now the piracy hotspot. Huh. Also in the Caribbean... And, but that's oftentimes smaller vessels. But on yeah. the large vessels, the Gulf of Guinea off of the west coast of Africa is now the, the major hotspot for piracy. What are some of the most memorable? I'm sure the, the losing a blade off the propeller <clears throat> is probably up there. But were there any other either close calls or just things that stick in your mind from your time at sea? Well, <clears throat> I would say that uh, I'll, I'll start off by saying that I've been very fortunate in my life, and when I've dropped a piece of bread, it's always landed buttered <laughs> side up. And I think back about some of the, what I will call, dumbass things that I have done. And as a cadet, in particular, uh, what happened was I was on this uh, ship called the SS Canada Mail. We had left Puget Sound. We're on our way going over to the Far East, and we had deck cargo, uh, which included... Uh, lumber, two by fours, we were taking over to Japan or Korea. It was uh, after dinner. This is probably sometime in the winter months, and I'm going to guess it might have been late February, something like this. We are westbound. We were running along the Illusion Chain, mm. and it was bad, nasty weather out there, uh, poor visibility, rough seas, windy, and the ship was rolling a lot. And the chief mate and the bosun and I all went out after dinner to take a look at the deck cargo to see if anything was loose. And we looked, and there was bundles of two-by-fours out there on the deck, and I saw that some of them had started to get loose. So I jumped up off of the catwalk, which is a raised uh, walkway, jumped up onto the cargo and went over there and started to try to grab these two-by-fours, and the chief yells at me, and he said, get your ass off of there. And I said, I'm just trying to save these two-by-fours. He says, get down here. And so I sheepishly climb off of the cargo, uh, get back down there on the catwalk, and he said, there are two-by-fours. We have insurance. <laughs> if we lose them, all we've lost is some two-by-fours. And I said, I was just trying to save them. He said, forget about it. It was not 60 seconds later. The ship took a deep roll, and the seas washed all of those two-by-fours over the side. Oh, gosh. I came within less than 60 seconds of being washed over the side in the Gulf of Alaska in the winter. That would have been a terminal event. I mean, your survival time in water of that temperature is measured in minutes. Yeah. They would have never found me. No. Oh, wow. Whew. 
Uh, I mean, I've done some other dumb things. I, I was a chief mate, and uh, we had tried to put some ballast in a cargo tank. I didn't line up the valves correctly, and I started up the uh, pumps to pump ballast into the tank, and the water was not going into the cargo tank. And I said, okay, stop the pump, and I went and checked the lineup. I said, oh, I forgot to close or open a valve. So I tried to open it, and uh, there's a, a wheel up on the deck, and it's got a reach rod that goes down to the valve down inside the tank, and it wouldn't open, and we tried a number of different methods to try to open it up, and it didn't open up. And I told the captain, and he said, well, Mark, that was your mistake. You're going to go down there inside this tank that formerly held gasoline. Mm. It still has all the gas fumes in there. He said, you're going to be putting on a Scott Air Pack, you're going to go down there, and you're going to try to open the valve from down inside the tank. A Scott Air Pack is what? Is a, it's like what firefighters wear okay. when they go in to fight a fire. It's ah. a self-contained breathing apparatus uh, because the atmosphere was, I mean, it was yeah, toxic. toxic, it was flammable, and it was oxygen deficient. And so I'm there with this 30-minute air tank, and I'm getting ready to go down there. Uh, to try to open up the valve, it, uh, it's got a yoke, and I was going to put a a bronze rod through there to try to open it from down there. And we had a safety backup team, uh, which was, consisted of uh, the first assistant engineer, who was the engineering equivalent of a, a chief mate, and he was a friend of mine and had a good sense of humor. And he says, uh, hey, Mark, what size work boot do you wear? And I said, uh, about an 11. Why? He says, well, if you die down there, can I have your work boots? <laughs> <laughs> and I won't tell you what I said. <laughs> but I went down there. I couldn't get the valve opened up. And I came out of there. And this was, if anything, any one thing had gone wrong, I would have been dead. Yeah. Uh, in today's safety-first environment, you never would have done that. Long story short, we wound up uh, washing the tank with water, took time, money. We opened up the valve from down inside the tank when it was all fresh air down there. Yeah. So I think of those things where I could have been killed. Uh, bad storms, Gulf of Alaska. What happens? These low-pressure systems get spawned over in Siberia, and they move eastward across the Gulf of Alaska, and it's just one low-pressure system after another, and there's no escaping them. So if you're going to be running up to Alaska to pick up oil in the winter, it's just the fact of life that you are going to be dealing with one bad storm after another. I mean, the ships are uh, designed and built to withstand those kind of rigors. But I remember one night in particular when it got really windy. The winds must have been in excess of 90 miles an hour mm. because we had an anemometer. You mm -hmm. know what an anemometer mm -hmm. is? All right. We had an anemometer outside. It looks like an airplane without wings. The wind was so strong, it actually blew that off the ship. Uh, but the whole ship was vibrating. The deck is, particularly when the ship is loaded, uh, the waves come over the bow, and it's green water, and it'll stay green all the way until it uh, hits the house and then shoots up in the air. And, and you can feel it. The ship shudders and shakes. Were you ever uh, scared for the ship itself? No. You learn how to deal with it. Yeah. You take the sea's bow on, typically put the sea, you know, 
maybe 20, 30 degrees off the port or the starboard bow, and you just don't go fast. Yeah. I mean, the largest ship I was on, the 1,100-footer, they are so big that they can bull their way through those waves. But what they found out that they were doing was uh, sustaining damage from the slamming forces Wow. of the waves hitting the ship. And so they would get into, you know, after the uh, storm was over, they could get out on deck and they'd do an inspection. They would find that they'd torn up pipelines, that they'd uh, been uh, stanchions. They'd, uh, ships have lost anchors out there. And so uh, you just slow it down. There's no point in beating the ship up because it's expensive to repair them, and you got to take the ship out of service. So it brings me to a question that I've been wanting to ask is weather. What did you do with weather? I mean, you were on the seas from, from 70s to 90s about? I uh, first started sailing with Arco in May of 1972, and I got off my last ship in uh, uh, November of 1991. Okay. And on weather... Yeah. So uh, it's nice. You've got weather facsimile so that you can get weather maps. You can see where the uh, pressure systems are. Um, you get advanced notice of uh, severe weather. There are some ships that will dodge weather. I mean, certainly nobody uh, would want to knowingly go through something like a hurricane. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself under pressure? I mean, I've heard stories of captains trying to get to port because they're under pressure from the company to in order to 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 minimize the time so going through bad weather because of that was that ever a never i will tell you uh, i i feel very privileged to have worked for a company that i thought was very progressive in terms of that when they felt they had enough faith in someone in yeah. their decision making ability and their professionalism to put them in command of the ship, they would not second-guess somebody. So if you said, we slowed down due to weather, they said, you're out there, you know what the weather's like, and it, it is your call, and we're not going to uh, second-guess you and say, no, you should have pushed the ship harder. Uh, you can That's great to hear. I mean, because the stories we do hear are the ones that go wrong, right? And and so to hear that there are a lot of ships out there where yes, as I, I will tell you, I'll give you an example. There was a a fellow who came up. Uh, he started off as an able-bodied seaman, same time I did. I mean, he was hired I think within two weeks of me, and he was on his first master's job. Uh, he was taking a ship out of I think Texas City or Houston. And he got outside and dropped off the pilot, and dense fog came in. And he said, I'm taking the ship to anchor. He said, I'm not going through the fog. And he sat at anchor. It's like being the taxi cab with the meter running. Uh -huh. He sat there for three days. Wow. And the company said, we trusted your judgment. And if you didn't feel like you wanted to uh, go through that fog, we stand behind you 100%. That's I mean, great. and so it was nice to have that kind of confidence yeah. uh, and that support as opposed to push it, push it, push it. But if you get into trouble, we'll fire you. Yeah. Back, though, to weather and weather forecasting, because weather forecasting has really changed 
a lot. And we kind of take it for granted now that we can get instantaneous satellite images. You had the weather facts. You you had some idea of what was coming. Sure. But was it sometimes just a matter of going out there and seeing what you would encounter? Well, you always went out there. I mean, I never had time in port where we didn't leave because of bad weather. So it was usually somewhere out in the open sea that, you know, we got into the uh, bad weather. We didn't really, other than hurricanes we or a typhoon, mm-hmm. we didn't really go to uh, weather avoidance. Okay. Some ships, particularly container ships that are going much faster, will uh, use a service that will uh, take the vessel particulars. In other words, their draft uh, stability program, uh, their speed, their length, and they will look at weather systems, and for each particular voyage, they will give a recommended course. So weather routing. Because, uh, it's a weather routing system, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a subscription. Uh, I mean, I, it used to be, uh, I'm going back now, 30 years ago, $5,000 a month for a, a company to yeah. subscribe to the service. But they would rec- recommend, they would say, you can actually uh, arrive in port faster by circumventing a low-pressure system uh, and getting staying out of the waves than just trying to and, pull your way through it. And I think there are some cruising sailors that even use services like that, not quite as expensive today. And um, Oh, sure. And they're offered. Which actually brings us, is a nice segue, because you're still on the water today. I'm still on the water today. But a slightly different size boat. Yes. Did you sail? Did you continue sailing all through... Oh, absolutely. So uh, it wasn't like a busman's holiday. No. Uh, so my parents uh, or my father actually wound up getting a couple of bigger boats, like eighteen footers. He built a sixteen foot sailboat himself. Uh-huh. I really enjoyed sailing. I was on the sailing team at the Merchant Marine Academy, but only one year. I thought I was a hot stuff sailor because I was a fleet champion back in Lake Bluff one year. Uh-huh. And I got to the Merchant Marine Academy and started doing collegiate sailing. And I realized I was <laughs> a B-team sailor. So I only sailed competitively my plea year at the academy. But uh, in terms of the small boats, I came back out here. I came out to San Francisco 1971. And I, and I came here because of the sailing. And I was looking for rides on boats, and I actually wound up uh, getting to crew on an Ericsson 39 in the late uh, 1970s. Okay. I mean, that was the biggest boat I'd ever crewed on. Uh, I, had a, I shared this house with a, uh, a guy, and it was his uncle that had the Ericsson 39, and so we were crewing with him, and that's how I really got uh, into sailing on the bay. That's great. So I, I've been out there, and as a, and I've actually been on a my own boat and sailed right under the stern of an Arco tanker, <laughs> and, and and looked at it from, you know, uh, the different perspective. Uh, That's great. But I so I did continue to sail, and people said, "No, wait a minute, you know, isn't sailing for you like the mailman taking a walk on his day off?" Yeah, and I said. No, I, it's a different way of being out there on the water, and I really enjoy it. There would be a, a big hole in my life if I wasn't able to get out and get onto the water. So, yes, I've continued to sail. And I, so I've owned uh, four different boats here on the bay. What have they been? 
The first one, uh, well, okay. I was very short on money and I was looking to get into a, uh, a boat on, and a f- mutual friend said, there's a guy I know who is looking for a boat partner and he's got a boat down in the San Francisco Marina and you might want to talk to him. He just lost his uh, other partner. And I talked to him and uh, it was a Excalibur 26 mm-hmm. outboard motor, 70s fiberglass boat. The buy-in was cheap, and that was the first boat with my boat partner, Dick. From there, he and I moved up to a Choi Lee Offshore 27. Okay. And we had that for a number of years, and then we, we both had larger families, wanted a bigger boat, and we had a 30-foot slip and found uh, that the biggest boat you could get that was 30 feet was a Catalina 30. So we uh, got a Catalina 30. Still then, partners on that. Uh, still partners. Well, we had a, uh, an engine problem. The, the original engine, saltwater-cooled engine, died, and the replacement cost to put a new engine in was $13,500. Oof. And he said, I don't want to spend six or $7,000 of my money to put into that boat. And I said, Dick... I'll buy you out. So I bought him out of the boat. So I wound up owning the boat by myself. Then it was almost six years ago that I moved up to the Catalina 355. We've talked for for over an hour now, but there's one story that I want. There's so many more questions. We'll have to do another, another episode of this. But you met your wife aboard a ship. I did. I want to hear how that. All right. I was second mate on the Arco Heritage, or actually in those days it was the Atlantic Heritage. And at one point she had been, the Atlantic Heritage had been the largest tonnage ship in the U.S. Merchant Marine. Mm -hmm. Held that record for about a month and a half. (laughs) Anyway, it was running on the East Coast. I was a second mate, and I was not too far out of a divorce. And Arco had just started to hire women a few years before. So uh, they were a bit of a novelty on board the ship, Uh and they were hiring them into the stewards department, which is entry-level position. Karen came on board the ship, and she was a mess person. Mess person uh, does culinary work, food preparation, uh, cleaning dishes, rooms, uh, set up and serve tables, this type of thing. And, of course, I had my eye out, and uh, my first recollection of looking at her was, hmm, I'm not really so sure. She had just graduated from Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Uh And uh, I don't know whether you know anything about Reed, but it's got a reputation. Uh And she was wearing this, what I call, a tent dress, and she had jelly sandals on, and I thought, little hippy-dippy looking for me, but mm, okay. So I knew she was on the ship, and we had chatted a little bit, but we both had our jobs to do. We actually met in Perth Amboy, New Jersey. So no spark right away, but there was, you know, there was a little bit of interest there. Uh, the ship wound up going down and anchoring off in Newport News, Virginia. We were waiting to go to the shipyard. And she said, hey, would you like to go ashore and go to historic Williamsburg 
and drink some beer and eat some oysters. And I said, absolutely. I said, who else is going? And she goes, just you. <laughs> well, I said, mm, yep, that's a good omen. So we took the launch ashore. I had rented a car. We did go to historic Williamsburg. Oysters were out of season, so we had clams. Had some ale. Came within 45 seconds of missing the launch to oh, go gosh. back out to the ship. I it, guess you were having a good time. Uh, well, I'd kind of lost the car for a while. Uh-oh. We both made it getting onto the launch by 45 seconds. The launch took off, went back out to the ship at anchor, and I had to go on watch because I was on the midnight the four watch. Well, that was the start of a beautiful friendship <laughs> out of Casablanca, right? And so anyway, uh, we dated on and off for about six years. Were you lucky enough to be on the same ship? We were, most of the time? and we were very open about our relationship. No sneaking around. The company took a very dim view of this because mm. I was a licensed officer and she was unlicensed. So it's like the difference between being officer and enlisted in the military. Yeah. At one point, the vice president of operations came aboard the ship, had a breakfast powwow with the captain, and left. And the captain said to me, Mark, come here, I want to talk to you. And he said, do you know why this, uh, the vice president was here? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, he's here for one reason and one reason only, and that's for me to tell you that if you are found in Karen's room or Karen's found in your room, uh, you're both fired. They took her off the ship, so they intentionally kept us apart. Mm. So she only worked for three years. She quit, and then she came out here to San Francisco and worked in the, the restaurant business for several years. Uh, it took a while to figure this out. Ironically, she met my sister before I met Karen. My sister started to work for Arco two years after I did. And one summer when Karen was going to college, she worked uh, aboard the Arco tankers and she met my sister. I met her father, uh, who was captain on another uh, tanker up in Swan Island Shipyard in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, before I met her. Uh, it was kind of an unfortunate circumstance. He brought the ship into the shipyard with 80,000 barrels of dirty ballast. Arco then sent us over to lay in alongside his ship, and they pumped the ballast off into our ship because it was otherwise it was going to be prohibitively expensive. He actually got fired off that job, but I had to go over there when the two ships were laying along side by side and talk to him and said, okay, uh, I'm the second mate, and I'm here to... Uh, do the transfer. And so I'd met her father before I met her. Huh. Wow. Small, small world on and the big I, ocean. I sail, Karen's brother also went to work for Arco and I sailed with him for a while. So it was, yeah, it was, uh, we were kind of a, a tanker family. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing some of your tanker stories and some of your sailing stories, Mark. This has really been a pleasure. Well, I'm glad I could do this and let's do it again. Yes. That's it for this episode. And until this interview with Mark, most of my knowledge of the Merchant Marine came from a few other interviews I'd done with Merchant Mariners and through John McPhee's book, Looking for a Ship, which I mentioned in this interview but mistakenly called Waiting for a Ship. It's Looking for a Ship. Just wanted to make that correction in case anyone out there wanted to find and read the book. 
I also mentioned that the subject of that book, Andy Chase, was recently interviewed on Andy Shell's On The Wind podcast. I highly recommend listening to that. It's a small world because Andy Chase happens to live in Castine, Maine, which is also where my cousin Tom and his wife Amy live, and they're all close friends. I've not met Andy Chase, but I did thoroughly his enjoy, enjoy his interview on the On The Wind podcast, and I recommend it to you. As always, I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Thanks for listening. I always appreciate reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and if you want to get in touch, drop me a line at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I love hearing from listeners. Until next time, smooth sailing.